Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and something very special and certainly a little different for this podcast for this week of the 4th of July. So check them out. You know, New York City's not that far from Washington, D.C., and there are several ways to get from Washington to New York, depending on how big a hurry you're in. You could take the Delta Airlines shuttle and be there in an hour. Uh, You could take Amtrak, that's my favorite, and be there in three hours. You could take the Bolt bus and be there in a little over four hours. Or you could walk, (laughs) yes, walk from DC to New York and be there in 26 days. That's what former Wall Street Journal reporter Neil King did this spring, walking by himself through historic parts of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey until he crossed over into the Big Apple, meeting, as you can imagine, lots of interesting people and having lots of great adventures along the way. Neil King's now writing a book about his odyssey, but we get a sneak peek this week for your listening pleasure on the Bill Press Pod. So, hello, Neil. You are uh, back for a couple of weeks, all all rested up and ready to go again. <laughs> well, I have to spend some time actually just figuring it all out what happened, but I am fully rested. Good. So, the question I'm sure I want to start with, probably everybody starts with. So I love to go to New York uh, for a weekend every once in a while. I just hop on Amtrak. It's uh, I'm there in two hours and 45 minutes. I could fly up uh, in an hour. Why the hell did you decide to walk to New York? I think it has something to do with what you just said, which is that all of us who live in Washington or New York, we know all the quick ways to get from one place to the other. Everybody's kind of obsessed by how you can cut off 15 or 20 minutes if you take the plane <laughs> or this airplane. And I, one day, there's a few years ago, I was like, gosh, I wonder what would happen if I just walked out of my house and walked there. Like, how would, <laughs> what would be the path? Would it be fun? Would it be strange? And, and then I kind of started thinking, well, how did the old timers do it? How did the colonials do it? How did people do it by horseback, for that matter? So the more I kind of looked at that, the more I realized that there was a lot in between that was actually worth seeing so it became my joke kind of became i would do a slow walk through the fast corridor you know the acela mm-hmm. corridor and even though my walk didn't actually follow the acela or follow you know i95 um it kind of went up in an arcing sort of parabola of sorts up above that and then um caught the jersey turnpike and stuff a little bit further north and went into manhattan uh, so let's go to the basic first of all. How long did it take you? You know, I set out on the 29th of March, which was fantastic timing, perfect 
beginning of spring. And it took me 26 days before I got to Manhattan. I just have to point out that like three days I was more or less stationary in Philly. And uh, I spent essentially a day poking around in York, Pennsylvania. And I spent a day poking around in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So days of motion were about 20, but days of uh, the trip itself took 26. Uh, and you mentioned the route. So clearly you did not walk up I-95. Um, you chose a route through uh, suburban Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, right? Yeah, I kind of... Describe, describe that generally, obviously. Yeah. Not. So I went straight up uh, north uh, of D.C., up Rock Creek, um, up through Olney, up through northern Maryland, skirted Baltimore, went up uh, across the Mason-Dixon line, uh, you know, whatever that was, 40 miles south of York. I went up a bit of the rail line that's very interesting and historic that connects um, Baltimore mm -hmm. to York. Then I cut across through Lancaster County, the kind of amazing Amish Mennonite areas of Lancaster County. I went down through Valley Forge. I went to Philadelphia. Then I cut up um, to Doylestown. Anyway, then I cut across you know, I went across to Delaware where uh, Washington did. You got to do that. And um, went to Princeton. Then I cut across New Jersey and up to New York, Staten Island. I very much wanted to follow the old way that Jefferson or Franklin or Washington or whomever, you know, had to, or anybody had to travel from Philadelphia to New York City. And I mimicked that route, which is very interesting. And how long were you uh, how long how long were you planning this trip? You know, I planned it to do it last year, last spring, and then COVID got in the way. I was going to walk out the door basically the same day. And as we all recall, at the mm -hmm. end of March, COVID was out of control and everything was closing down. So I ended up delaying it exactly a year. I do have to say that that part, I mean, COVID was no great thing, but it certainly made the walk so much more potent and interesting. And, you know, all the horrors of January 6th and the fights over the election and kind of our, you know, various wrestles and tussles with ourselves as a nation and the whole issue of 1619 Project and our own memory and what do we memorialize or what memorials should we tear down and all of those things that had happened in the year in between made the walk two or three times more valuable. But just planning, you know, your route, where you were going to stay, who you're going to meet up with uh, must have taken you months of planning, right? It did, because one, I was not planning to camp out. Um, mm -hmm. so I had to find different kinds of lodging, which was not easy. Um, Airbnbs, inns, occasionally like a motel and things like that. And I didn't want to leave all my encounters up to chance. So I had to plan various people to meet and figure out in some places where I should meet truly interesting people, archaeologists, historians, journalists, mayors, whatever. And uh, those pre-planned meetings were really instrumental and really great. But the serendipitous meetings were, in, in many ways, the most magical. So it was a mixture of both mm -hmm. serendipity and planning. What did you take with you? I know you had a backpack. I saw pictures of you with a backpack. But, uh... Yeah, I went super spare. I, um, I had about 16, 17 pounds in my backpack, two pounds of which were my laptop. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I had very, I had one pair of shoes, walking pair of shoes from Ultra, which were fantastic. I had 
Otherwise, a couple of shirts, you know, pair of shirts, pair of long pants, etc. Uh, I went soup and I had a fly rod and some equipment, <laughs> and fly fishing, but I went really, really spare. One pair of shoes? You, you yeah, didn't one, take a backup? One pair of shoes. And, you know, if they got wet, they got wet. I went through some rivers. Uh, I did some fishing where I even used them as sort of my waders of sorts. Um, and it was fine. It worked out fine. Right. Um, so you had some rivers to cross, too. You knew that ahead of time. Um, well, so I mean, you, I, obviously, I, you didn't mention taking a kayak or a canoe. Right? So, you know, I originally had a bunch of bold plans about trying to kayak down the Schuylkill into Philadelphia and things like that. Um, but I nixed that for um, just as being too complicated. And um, I, uh, but when it came to crossing most rivers, of course, there are big bridges for that. Um, and that whole aspect actually was quite interesting because when you get to the Susquehanna, that is a huge, formidable, deeply important river in American history, one-time frontier river. And now, of course, you, you know, you blaze across it on a bridge, whether on a train or in a car. And I spent, I don't know, 45 minutes just sort of standing there when I got there at Wrightsville and just taking it all in. Um, and those, those encounters with the big rivers were very powerful. Were you ever afraid at any point on the trip? You know, I was not. Um, the only thing I was kind of afraid of was distracted drivers and, you know, stupid people. Um, <laughs> I was primarily on roads of differing sizes, and uh, I almost always walked towards incoming traffic so I could see some, you know, dunce if they were, you know, driving on the shoulder of the road or something, which never really happened. Um I was pretty lucky and I got very lucky on the weather because, um, you know, walking in a heavy rainstorm along the shoulder of a road is not really well advised. So I didn't have to do much of that. Right. So um, I happen to be a, a big fan of travel literature. And on my bookshelves uh, included in the travel literature there's a book by Paul Theroux, uh, Kingdom by the Sea, Walking Around the uh, English Isles. Um, Eric Newby, a book called uh, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush. Hindu Kush. Uh, a guy named Patrick Lee Fairmore who walked from oh, yeah. Holland to Constantinople and wrote a whole I'm, trilogy yeah. about yeah. it. Are you Were you inspired by any of them, any of these uh, sort of historic literary walks? You know, I was in many, many ways. Um one other one I would mention would be In Patagonia, the great Bruce Chatwin book about walking, taking yeah. buses and various things around Patagonia. Um, that Patrick Lee Furmore book I absolutely love, uh, particularly the first one, A Time of Gifts. Um, the other thing that I was quite inspired by, they're not nearly as beautiful or literary as the books you just mentioned, but was all the travel logs that people like Alexis de Tocqueville, Charles Dickens, Many, many, many non or less well-known people wrote in the 20s, 30s, and 40s of the 19th century who all came to the United States and took a very similar path that I took trying to figure this new country out. And, um, you know, de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is the most famous version of those books, but there were hundreds of them written during that stretch. And I downloaded pretty much all of them from the Library of Congress and, and mm. at least read through portions of quite a few of them. 
Yeah. Well, I, I was lucky uh, as a friend to follow you through your uh, liter- your journal, online journal that you sent out every day. Uh, and I was struck uh, by the history uh, that you encountered uh, and revisited, uh, the sites that you saw and the people that you met. Let's talk about each of those. Historically, what were, the, what were the, you know, you met with historians all along the way. And just a little while ago, you referenced this railroad track. Uh, which um, I I found fascinating, uh, having to do with Abraham Lincoln, right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, now I'm actually writing a book version of all of this, so I've I've gone even deeper on these things. And, um, you know, so this is the one of the actual brand-new first railroads ever built was the one from Baltimore that went up to York and then to Harrisburg, et cetera. And Baltimore was actually kind of the birthplace of the American railroad system. And this particular line happens to be the line that took Lincoln in um, November of 1863 to Gettysburg. And when you go up that way now, you come to this station called Hanover Junction Station. And um, it has a track that goes off to the left, which is the track that Lincoln took on his way to Gettysburg, where he actually paused at that station for a little while. And, um, And then the track that goes off to the right is the one that goes up to York and then to Harrisburg. And tragically, Lincoln took that uh, rail line um, basically a year and a half later, April 1865, mm. after he had been assassinated. And, you know, the 13, 14-day trip that his casket took getting him to Springfield. And that was a very powerful place to be. And I just spent, you know, 15, 20 minutes kind of um, mulling all of that while I was there. And there were a lot of encounters along the way that were like that, where you're in you know, these places that you give them meaning by being there and they kind of give you meaning back by by taking it all in. And it was pretty powerful. You must have been places where Washington slept or allegedly slept. <laughs> As my trip went on, uh, I, I got, there was, of course, I was in the footprints of all those guys uh, and very much Washington. Also a lot of um, Marquis de Lafayette in ways that were very funny. Um, Hamilton, um, Thomas Paine, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that became kind of an unavoidable theme. And I made a point, a friend of mine came down from New York with a couple of kayaks and right there at Washington's crossing, um, you know, just a bit up from Trenton, we crossed the Delaware, uh, in the kayaks, which was really, really fun. And a whole group of hikers met me on the other side. Because <laughs> my walk became kind of a thing as it went, and a lot of people were noting it on Twitter because I was posting photos and stuff out a very long thread. And uh, so I had a number of uh, what I called road fans of people who just <laughs> encountered me along the way, which was really, really fun. Some of them added quite a lot to the walk, actually. You know, they would right. walk with me and fill me in on details and stuff. And did you find, it seems that you found that in some of these small towns, uh, people are very proud of their history, right? And we're very uh, eager to show you around. uh, Uh, Very, very much so that way, yeah. And, you know, there were many things that really struck me about the nature of being a pilgrim and walking through a town or down the road and encountering people and them, you know, digesting, taking in the fact that you're on your way to a distant place, New York City, it just changed the way they would interact with me. And with basically only one exception where I had a bizarre encounter with a strange character who 
didn't want to fill my water bottle. I, well, yeah, tell us about that. Because I was going to ask you whether you found the people uh, overall friendly. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But one day in particular, I was still in northern uh, Maryland. I was walking through one of these, you know, one-time farms turned into a sort of a sea of mini McMansion kind of places. And my water bottle was empty. And I, I came upon a guy in his 30s at the end of his driveway. And I said to him, instead of saying, hey, can you fill my water bottle? I said, you know, do you know where I can get some water? And knowing, of course, that he had quite a lot of water in his house. <laughs> uh, and he described this long two-mile walk to the nearest store. And I just sort of looked at him in bafflement. And we had a whole long discussion where I told him about the you know hospitality traditions in other nations. <laughs> and we had a very interesting discussion. But even at the end of it, he never saw it fit to fill my water bottle. And I just found that pretty astonishing. Uh, but he was the exception, you say? He was, yeah. And it was funny because that, I called it the parable of the empty, empty water bottle, became kind of a, an ongoing theme. And I told that story to a number of people along the way. And there were sometimes I would encounter people and I would say, hey, I wanted to ask you a question. And they would say, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, but first, hey, do you want me to fill your water bottle? You know, mm. that kind of thing. So, yeah, I had some fantastic encounters with people along the way in that way. Um, did you meet any Trumpers? I did. Um, I think the funniest one of all was when I was in uh, northern New Jersey. There's an area there kind of, you know, 30, 40 miles south of Manhattan where it's very Trumpy territory. And um, it was funny because I came along the sidewalk. There was a guy's house. He had the, you know, make America great again. He had a flag. His truck was all tricked out. And I was thinking gosh, it'd be great to have a real discussion with this guy because I haven't had like the full discussion. And miraculously, he just appears <laughs> on his driveway because he was about to go on a walk and he sort of sweeps his hand towards his truck and the flag and everything. And he literally says to me, does this provoke any thoughts? And uh, <laughs> I said to myself, it's just like, how could this happen? That I want to talk to the guy. He comes out and then he says to me, does all this provoke any thoughts? And um, it was funny because I said, you know, yeah, of course it provokes all kinds of thoughts. I don't know if I necessarily really care to share them. It's maybe not as interesting to me as you might think or whatever. And he said, oh, well, hey, where are you going? And when I told him, he said, he, on the other hand, said, can I get you a water? Can I get you a beer? What about a clementine? What about some bananas? What about some granola bars? <laughs> so I said, uh, hey, you said a beer. It's five o'clock. I'm walking. I got another hour and a half ahead of me. I'll drink a beer. So I did the proverbial drink a beer with a guy in his driveway. And not only did he bring me a beer, he bought me water, clementines, the entire list of things he had mentioned. And uh, it turned out to be a really interesting and fascinating conversation. And, uh, you know, we held some views that I don't necessarily share with him. But there was a lot that I actually liked about the guy himself. I was really struck by your encounter with the students at an Amish school, I believe it was. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, it was Mennonite school, and that Mennonite was school. definitely the highlight of the trip. I mean, I'll, I'll give you the short version. I, and this just testifies to the incredible nature of the difference between walking and driving because of all the things I would never, ever have seen if I'd been driving. And I'm walking along a road, come by a Mennonite school, I can see just off to the side that there's a young woman, probably eighth or ninth grade, 
She's got a, you know, dress in a full length floral dress with like a kind of a bonnet. They call them head coverings over her head. And she's got a baseball glove on. And I'm like, (laughs) and then I hear the whack of a softball and she backs up and catches this basically like a line drive, you know, fly ball into left field. And I'm like, and did it incredibly well. And I'm like, what is going on? So I go back there, big playground, two huge, very aggressive games of softball being played all Mm -hmm. by boys and girls with the girls all wearing different kinds of floral dresses like that. You know, this is springs bursting out. These Mennonites are playing the most incredible game of softball. All the women are dressed like that. It was like this just extraordinary American thing just out of like Norman Rockwell or something. I was just blown away. So the bell rings. They all come running over to me as their teacher does too. He asks what I'm doing. When I tell him, he tells the kids to gather around and I give them almost like a kind of extemporaneous chat. You know, and then at the end of it, one of the young women says to her teacher, his name is Neil Weaver. She says, Mr. Weaver, why don't we go sing for Mr. King? And uh, he says, do you have time? And I was like, uh, yeah, I have time. And so they took me into the school, into their choir room, and they sang two Mennonite hymns for me that were just mm. over the top gorgeous. And this was their spontaneous way of thanking me for being there. And um, that whole moment and i've been in touch with neil the teacher and i actually saw him a couple weeks ago i was back up that way and i spent an hour and a half talking to him and his wife and his family and i now (laughs) have all these like friends scattered throughout that (laughs) it was really amazing uh so well let's take a quick break here neil we're just about halfway to new york we got a long way to go here so take a quick break on the bill press pod our guest former wall street journal reporter neil king Uh, and the man who just walked from Washington, D.C. to New York. We'll be right back. And today's podcast with Neil King, the walking man from D.C. to New York, is brought to you by the great men and women of the Teamsters Union, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, America's largest and most diverse labor union, one and a half million members strong, under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, representing Every line of work in this country, from agricultural workers in California to brewery workers in St. Louis to bakery workers in Maine, they cover everything from A to Z, as they say, from airline pilots to zookeepers. Check out their website at teamster.org, and we thank the members of the Teamsters Union for their great work building this country and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we're back with Neil King. Uh, yes, Neil, do you have a name, a name for the new book yet, a title? You know, we're kind of talking about American Ramble or something like that. Um, and then with some sort of subtitle that would be, you know, I'm kind of wanting it to be a walk through time on the way to New York or a walk through past and present of our original heart, first heartland or something like that. It was very much a time, a kind of layering of time thing in that it was, um, you know, you're in the present, very profoundly in the present. You're also very much in all different layers of the past. I mean, this morning in writing the book, I was writing about my a few hours spent with the mayor in York, who's this just incredibly fascinating character. And when I arrive at his house, built in 1761, where Thomas Paine had actually spent some time writing one of his American crisis pamphlets, I arrive at Michael Helfrich's house, and he opens the door, and he's excited about the fact that he had just found this like scrap of parchment in an old history of York that was written in German, this piece of parchment, and it was what's called a powwow, which was this kind of folk medicine thing that the Dutch, the Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, the Germans was a very common part of their kind of treatment. And he had found this thing that was at least 200 years old, and he was reading it to me. It was about yeah. how you can cure a broken bone. And that to me right there just kind of captured all the layers, the, the German, the kind of folkloric mid-middle ages, you know, European medicine treatments brought to the U.S. within a 1907 book, but itself mm. was probably from the early 1800s. That kind of layering kind of followed me throughout the whole trip. If there were one, if I wanted to take a day trip or a couple of day trip uh, between here and New York, is there one small town that you visited that you that really captured you? You would say you got to see. Yeah, what I town? think in a funny way, I would probably recommend that you go to Doylestown, which is a little ways north of, of Philadelphia. And mm. uh, Doylestown is happens to be the birthplace and where uh, uh, Margaret Mead grew up and James Michener grew up there. Uh, and then there's a guy named Henry Mercer, who is this fascinating, kind of almost like a cultural archaeologist. And he created this place that's now called the Mercer Museum, which many people think to be the most bizarre kind of gotta go visit museum in the country. His whole obsession was um, collecting all of the things he kind of, he called it the founding tools, all the things that built the nation before they all disappeared and went away with the industrial revolution, um, grist mills and hatchets and everything that, that the original settlers used. And the place is just, I mean, you could look it up, the Mercer Museum. It's got, it's so bizarre inside. It's got whale boats, <laughs> it's got stagecoaches, everything imaginable. Charlestown's a very cool town 
with a lot of layers to it. And the Mercer Museum is itself definitely worth a, a go. Uh, I was impressed that one, it seems that one of the sites that you saw that impressed you the most was the landfill. <laughs> uh, well, you know, yeah. This is northern New Jersey, right? Tell us about it. Yeah, that's exit nine on the Jersey Turnpike. I've been coming oh. down that a, a month be- month or two before, and I was on, you know, driving in a car, and I looked over and I was like, oh my God, that's the high point of this entire area. I mean, they are, as we speak, building a mountain from our own refuse. You know, this is Middlesex County, um, right there near Edison, um, near the Raritan River. So I said, I've got to go to the top of that. And I reached out to them, and somewhat to my surprise, they were like, great, do it, come, we'll take you up to the top of it. And my dream- It's was, a working landfill, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, very working. And uh-huh. uh, my dream was that when I got to the top of it, that's where I would first see my destination, kind of like a Lewis <laughs> and Clark moment or something. And lo and behold, <laughs> we walked up to the top of it, and boom, he said, if you look closely- there you'll see the Manhattan skyline. It was like 25, 30 miles away, and I could see the Manhattan skyline. And the fact that I was seeing it from atop this, you know, decades after decades created pile of refuse, of which another five feet were being added to a portion of it that day, um, was pretty powerful. So the trucks were bringing the stuff up while you were, while you were oh. there. Definitely, yeah. big time. And it was fascinating. I, I kind of likened it to the reverse of going down the Grand Canyon where you're walking down, <laughs> through, you know, millions of years of, of geological time. And in this case, I'm walking up decades and decades of human refuse created time. Um, so it was sort of in that area uh, that you had to figure out how to get under of the freeway under I-95 through this wetland, which was maybe the most challenging part of your trip. Um, how'd you arrange that? Yeah, that was a very bizarre thing where I came to a town called Cranbury, which is a very well-preserved, beautiful 19th century town. And right on the other side of it is this huge um, con- you know, uh, group of Amazon, Costco, Wayfair uh, warehouses. And then right past that is the Jersey Turnpike. So I was like, okay, this is my moment of encounter with the great beast of the Jersey Turnpike itself. And in the end, long story short, someone there lent me his kayak to go up this river, the Cranberry Creek, Cranberry Brook, I guess it's called. And it was the most, it was really like going up the heart of darkness kind of trip, you know, Mm. up this incredibly exotic, bizarre, primordial kind of river. But through the warehouses and then coming through the Jersey Turnpike. And I had to portage over these fallen trees and all this kind of stuff. And uh, that was that whole stretch, which lasted about an hour, was really magical. Uh, this was somebody else's? You So you borrowed a kayak? Yeah, he lent me his kayak. And I was like, <laughs> what am I, how are you going to get it back? And he said, oh, don't worry, just leave it on the other side of the freeway and I'll come up in a day or so and I'll just grab it. And I was like, okay. And that's what he did. So you're working on a book about all of this now. Uh, what's the timetable for the book? You know, I'll deliver it probably in, I don't know, two, three months, or no, probably three, four months. And um, and then when it comes out, it will be sometime next year. I would hope, I would love if it came out next spring, but I think it's going to be more like next summer or something like that. 
Uh, and I'm sure you're saving some of this for the book, but uh, you know, you've been thinking about it a lot too. So what did you learn overall from this experience? You know, I mean, a lot of it was really about just the potency and the power of place and just being in places where things that were formative and important to our history happened and and kind of paying them the respect and time that they're due. And I mean, of all kinds, I don't mean just heroic things. I mean, you know, Underground Railroad. And I mean, I was in a lot of places where wrenching things happened too, and those are very valuable. I think the other one is, you know, this whole kind of concept of common ground, which is, a, a, you know, a phrase we have, but a, but a reality that we don't share that much anymore. And that the difference what that it really makes when you are talking with somebody who is very different from you, might hold very starkly different political views than you hold. But if you're standing on the same patch of earth talking to them, it's a different relationship than doing it via Twitter or on Facebook or whatever. And it really makes a difference. And, you know, I think some of that stuff we're just losing over time for a variety of reasons. And um, that's unfortunate. And I guess overall, the um, importance and the value of um, getting off the main roads and getting onto the back roads, right? And seeing um, almost yeah. a forgotten America, small oh. towns and fields and farms and people no, who, live, who live there. I tweeted all this stuff along the way, and at one point a friend of mine sent me a note saying, Neil, I love this because you're getting all this reaction from the kind of beltway journalism class that you know so well, and yet you're showing them all up because you are taking this long walk between the nation's two major media markets and pointing out all these things that all these people don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which I, I know. pretty apt and was pretty funny. A, a, a great adventure. So... Um, you know, they say that um, the average person, we should get our exercise every day, 10,000 steps, which is about three miles. What do you walk every day? You know, lately I've been sort of slacked off because I've been spending wow. time writing and stuff like that. But I I mean, I think if I look at my entire year, I've averaged about seventeen or 18,000. On the trip, I averaged about 24, 25,000 steps a day. There were some that got well into the high 30s or even 40s because, um, you know, when you're walking 25, 26 miles, it can do that. Um, but I'm a big fan of walking, that's for sure. Was your average walk on the uh, on your trip, um, what, about 8 or 10 miles? Or no, the average day when I was walking was probably about 12 to 13. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can, you know, you do 3.2, 3.3 miles an hour. That's what I do. So that's walking four or five hours, and that still leaves you a lot of time to do other things. Uh, you've got to get the book done. You will, you're working on the book. Uh, what's your next big walk? Or have you, have you decided well, you're, you're going to walk to Chicago? Or, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think if I were to do another walk like this, I would probably walk south um, mm. because it would bring up so many other different sorts of stories and a and more, you know, in this case, I walked out of the South, so to speak, um, on like right. fourth day, even though I would argue that that part of uh, Southern Pennsylvania is still pretty Southern. Um, but, um, you know, and then I walked very much through a kind of Quaker, Mennonite, Amish, and then England territory. Um, I think a walk, you know, somewhere, I don't know, to Charleston or something like that would be pretty extraordinary. Um, but I, I don't have any immediate plans. But I do definitely 
want to do more of it. And I really urge people to to do it. I mean, my thing was walking is basically 20 times slower than driving three miles versus 60 miles an hour and probably more like 30 or 40 times more meaningful in terms of what you see and the encounters that you have because you're going that much slower. Yeah, well, what a great adventure. I uh, admire you for doing it and uh, thank you uh, for sharing it all with us, your friends, and now with all our listeners to the uh, Bill Press Pod. And we will talk to you again, Neil King, when the book comes out, hopefully in the spring of 2022. Let's do it. I really appreciate it, Bill. A lot of fun. And that's it for today's podcast. I, uh, I guess I'll see you on the trail, on the road, right, from D.C. to New York. Now we have to walk it. We can't just take the bus or take the train or take a plane. <laughs> However you get there, thank you for listening to the podcast. Enjoy your 4th of July week. Be strong, be safe, and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.